Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the surprising influences of global economic growth. And in the face of a climate emergency, how can we ensure our investments support real, meaningful change? With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Ian Aylwood, Head of Fund and Manager Selection, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. This week, we're going to return to the very familiar theme of climate and responsible investing. So we have the person that's most familiar on the subject in our business, Ian Elwood. Ian, hi, thanks for joining us. Hi, Nikki. How are you doing? Great stuff, thank you. And on the subject of climate, enjoying enjoying the, the slightly warmer weather than I think when we last had you on. And as usual, we've got Will to give us the latest from the world of economics, markets and all things in between. So, Will, how are you? Nikki, I'm all right, I think. Yeah, so far, so good. Good, good, good. So what's been going on this week? Fill us in. Actually, not masses. Well, not masses relative. I mean, just... <laughs> At least not like when you think about what's uh, in the uh, in our rearview mirror. But I mean, you know, right. the inflation debate prattles on. But as before, as we've said before, it's too early for a meaningful peek at what um, what is to come here. Incoming inflation data simply, you know, come with a lot of noise and, and very little signal. So, uh, you know, the, the, the usual. Like I say, it's it's uh, it's very different to what we've had over the last year. So, uh, a welcome calmer tone for the most part. So on a on a slightly different note, Will, I saw you on LinkedIn talking a bit about human height linked with portfolio returns, which definitely garnered my interest. What was that all about? Well, Nikki, uh, yeah, I was just uh, reading. Oddly, I was reading some um, some stuff about the relationship between economic growth and human height. Basically, how human heights have been sort of dragged higher over the uh, centuries by by a growing economy, essentially. And in some ways, I was thinking that the way that those returns are interlinked, height and economic growth, is somehow related or quite similar in a way to how you can think of the returns to a diversified portfolio and its relationship to global growth. And you know, just on height, I mean, the, the figures are amazing. As the world has become wealthier these last 300 years, average human body size has increased by over 50%, average longevity by over 100%. And that's driven by, you know, accumulated dramatic improvements in nutrition and the disease environment. However, while longer term, there is this kind of this intuitive link and a loose, you know, correlation, just like there is between portfolio returns and global economic growth in the, in, in the long run, the shorter term link to growth is more brittle, you know, so in the case of height, you know, one of the sort of kinks, one of the moments when the growth in the economy and heights did not follow suit has been explained with the idea that, you know, disease outbreaks associated with rapid, you know, surges in urbanisation that came with that economic growth. They were seen as important factors in explaining why average heights in the UK and the US, you know, actually declined in between the 1820s and the 1840s, you know, time, like I say, of rapid productivity growth. What about from an investment perspective? Does that inform in any way the decisions that you and your team are making about where we should be placed? Yeah, I mean, uh, (laughs) it can be a bit tenuous, this, but but I do think there are loads in some ways, because uh, I think part of it is how 
average heights have evolved in the past and for what reasons, you know, help to inform you a little bit of how to set up your investment. So the first and most obvious point to make is that if you look historically, you know, surges in height in a particular country or societal cohort have not actually been very good predictors of future height moves over long periods of time, which should ring some bells. The second one is that, you know, looking at, you know, one channel or one of the other points that comes to mind is that, you know, looking at one channel of potential productive progress in the path ahead, you can imagine wider people are already talking about a wider application for the, you know, this shiny new messenger RNA vaccine technology. However, the diseases that they are currently, you know, that are currently thought to be vulnerable to this technological advance tend to bully, you know, emerging market populations more than they do develop. So perhaps it'll be there that life expectancy, you know, height uh, and investor rewards will be most sort of visibly felt and seen. Who knows? You know, the, the, the point is, I think, as usual, is, is, is to diversify. There's no requirement for last year's winners to be this year's winners. And um, we're already seeing that in the markets. And the same applies to, you know, actually kind of investment trends of, uh, of many years. That's, you know, one of the things that's, uh, you know, quite important about the regulator's warning. The past cannot be, is often not a good predictor of future returns. Um, and that's just something to bear in mind amidst that, you know, hopefully that long-term positive trend. Um, where you're anchored to the, you know, the, the hopefully growing, still growing global economy. Yeah, and let's hope the vaccination program continues to roll out and and get where it needs to get globally on on that. So, and just thinking about other interesting reads from your team on on LinkedIn, I saw the article by Luke Luke Pierce on luck. Is it the case that we make our own luck when it comes to investing? What were your thoughts on that? It's a great article is what I thought, and I think it's well worth a read. So I'd promote, I'd urge you to read it because it, the the relationship, you know, and Ian knows this only too well, you know, this is a huge part of his team's job is how to distinguish, and when we're talking about past performance again, how to distinguish which bit of that was achieved intentionally, the, the asset manager, the, the fund manager, the investor in question, did they actually deliberately try and get that return? Or was it just part of the luck that comes with investing, good and bad? And distinguishing between these two, it's it's a hugely important part of our role uh, when trying to pick which investors to, to put into our uh, into our client portfolios. But more generally, it's something to keep in mind with regards to how we think about investing ourselves. Yeah. And I mean, to that point, Ian, you know, I know you've covered it in podcasts before about your, your very considered process when selecting managers, but, but clearly a key thing that you and your team do is to, is to separate out luck from repeatable process that is not all about a, a particular staff fund manager. Absolutely. You know, I guess, as you say, or as you allude to, you know, separating skill from luck, trying to find that repeatability of process, of stable team that can be taken forward into the future you know, and translated into, into outperformance. Brilliant. So let's turn to the topic in hand. So Will mentioned when he was talking about average heights, that was fascinating, that clearly the role of disease and other environmental factors play, play a significant part on in, in that. And, and Ian, we've just had Lots of sunny pictures of G7 leaders in Cornwall trying to look friendly with each other and try not to annoy the locals too much. But the key focus, a key focus, was the climate change agenda. And, you know, we know in the UK we've got the COP26 in in Glasgow in November coming up. So climate change is very much part of the political 
discourse right now. It's very much an international leadership discussion between governments, companies, but also investors. So, Ian, given that you're absolutely steeped in this space, how how are you seeing that translate with the third party fund managers that that you and the team are selecting and, and employing in our in our funds ranges? Are we seeing a movement to recognize climate change and how that might impact the investing landscape? We we absolutely are. I think there's there's two elements to the well there's at least two elements to, to this. There's the businesses themselves, you know, those third party manager firms, and then there's how they embed uh, climate change into their investment approaches. So, so maybe I'll take each in turn. You know, on, on the business side, the highest profile step I think that a business can take is to report under something called TCFD. Well, that's the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosure. Snap it, snappy one that. I can see um, why there's an acronym. <laughs> Quite hard to say. Well done. Yeah, stand, stand by for some more. I think if nothing else, this is definitely an acronym-laden area. You know, we'll try and um, limit the number, but it does sort of come with the come with the subject matter. But essentially, you know, this framework involves disclosing, you know, the, the business's impact on the environment and includes things like strategy, risk, metrics, and targets. As I've just alluded to, there's a myriad of other initiatives as well. If I mention just three, there's the carbon disclosure project the IIGCC and the RE100. There I go again. Um, but in, in a sentence, just think of these as a, 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 a sort of a selection of voluntary standards related to carbon emissions that firms worldwide can sign up to. And I think, as you can tell just from my opening remarks, you know, this is a really, really active area currently. Perhaps if I just give a couple of really simple examples, you know, it is not unusual for those fund management firms to tell us, for example, that they offset um, the flights for their research teams, or at least they did before we were all on our Zoom calls, mm. or indeed that all the stationery they have is from recycled sources. And, and just while I'm on this subject, as it happens, of course, you would expect Barclays to report under TCFD. It has done for several years now and is a, a member of a number of climate initiatives itself, including our own, Barclays' own path to carbon neutrality. Anyway, on to the second part of the question, which was how do we see this coming through in investment approaches? Then you know, we clearly see many fund managers, as you asked, assessing how the firms they invest in are addressing climate change. Um, examples include aiming for carbon neutrality, and the fund managers assessing how plausible that looks, Indeed, how back-end loaded that looks. I mean, that, that's quite an important one, but it, it's not uncommon perhaps to see companies say, we'll be carbon neutral by year X, but in the first 10 years to that journey, not much will change. But don't worry, in the last couple of years, we'll, we'll definitely get there and we'll, we'll meet the target. And you know, again, assessing how plausible that is, is is really important from our fund managers. We certainly see evidence of their engagement with the underlying firms on this issue. We'll often question the fund managers on, on company examples. The fund managers will use tools like um, Sustainalytics or MSCI ESG Manager that will provide the carbon data to them and indeed all manner of environmental data to them. And much more recently, we're just beginning to see the managers reporting on these metrics to us as well. So you know, they will tell us a carbon footprint of the portfolio or in water intensity measure, for example. And as the phrase goes, only once you can measure it, can you manage it. 
and maybe just one one thing to to, to, to touch on here before I before I stop stop talking, and that is greenwashing, as in whitewashing, you know, is certainly a, a risk. You know, by this I mean sort of marketing spin rather than actual substance. You know, and all participants need to guard against that, including you know the fund managers and, and my team. Yeah. So so, and you talk there a lot about climate change, but there's other areas, aren't there? So. Can you just talk a little bit more about those and how your team's looking at the efficacy of the steps that the fund managers are taking beyond climate or environmental? Yes, yeah, so you know, we, we often hear this phrase now, ESG, that stands for environmental, social and governance. And of course, climate change is just you know, falls under the E, the E for environment. It's just one of the um, myriad of, of areas that fall under this, this acronym, another acronym. <laughs> Under social, for example, there's diversity and inclusion, the S for social, working conditions as well. Under the G for governance, there's considerations such as corporate governance and, and anti-corruption. And you know, with regards to what my team does, you know, we rate every manager with respect to ESG from A to C. So A, B or C, you know, based on how these factors come through within a variety of areas, such as the parent company things like recycling that we touched upon already or recruitment processes, uh, the people involved in that investment effort. Do they have a separate ESG team, for example, or is analysis embedded in their financial team? The investment philosophy and process, you know, what systems do they use? Is it, is it, is it really taken seriously? And finally, within the, sort of the, the performance or the holdings area, we'll look, you know, we'll listen to what a manager have to say, and then we'll actually look at the portfolio. It is not uncommon to hear a good story, back to this greenwashing again. But then when you look at the holdings, sometimes see some names that you just, just don't expect to see, having listened to what you've just been told. And it's sort of incongruous with, with the approach taken. So the tools we'll, we'll use include things such as those example holdings. You know, what is the manager actually holding in the portfolio? Also, um, MSCI ESG manager gives um, reports on funds. So that's a useful tool. The managers will produce voting and engagement reports for us. So we'll study those. Then there are more formal requirements such as the stewardship code. And there'll be reporting that meets that, meets that need. And all, you know, all of these things just build up our mosaic of understanding and allow us to arrive at an A, B or C rating. Okay, so what about the role of regulators? Because you know, as we as we've heard, we, we what you've described is what companies are doing and how the asset managers or the fund managers are influencing that. We mentioned about G seven and the COP summit that's coming up. Obviously, governments are playing quite a role here. But what about regulators? I mean, we're we're seeing a number of those regulations you mentioned stewardship code and and other elements that are coming into force within the investment space can you just share a little bit about that ian and and just how are you know people who are interested in financial markets can sort of gain an understanding of how much of this is happening almost to the financial markets and how much is is still you know very much for for investors to find their way around I mean, the types of funds that the listeners will mostly invest in, you know, retail funds, can be domiciled in either the UK or, or Europe. 
And you know, with regards to the European ones, the European regulations in this ESG space have been advancing very rapidly. To give a flavour, the most recent one, it requires all funds to classify themselves into one of three uh, buckets, uh, depending how, how deeply they embed ESG. As it happens, that, well, for its worth, they're called Article 6, Article 8 and Article 9. But just think of them as the degree of greenness of the funds. Also applied to this is something called the Principal Adverse Impact, PAI. There's another acronym, <laughs> which means reporting against essentially 18 mandatory ESG indicators. So that, that means one has to drill through into every holdings revenues to calculate such statistics. So you know, that, that's an enormous mm. piece of regulation in its own right. But beyond that, we have something called the EU taxonomy, which is um, you know, coming, coming over the horizon, whereby all of a company's activities, those companies held within the portfolios, have to be mapped to a range of sustainable activities, those that meet sustainable activities and those that don't. And then beyond that, further still, there's another regulation that will come along where we need to formally, the industry needs to formally assess investors' interests in investing in a sustainable manner as part of their suitability journey. So I think you get the idea here. This is a huge body of work, a great deal of regulations coming coming through ultimately to benefit investors, as you touched on, and, and, and their, their knowledge, but also to benefit the environment and society. And of course, we haven't even seen the UK regulations yet. You know, those you know, will we'll be coming along now that we have left Europe. Those will be separate and we're we'll coming along later this year. Very good. And within those frameworks, etc., we mentioned just now about voting and engagement. And I think that sort of resonates when it comes to being a, an investor in equities, right? Shareholders can uh, vote at, at AGMs and hold the boards accountable. But what about, for example, bonds? You know, certainly in our diversified asset allocation, we have an exposure to corporate bonds, both emerging market and, and developed market. So how does, how does that work from an ESG or voting perspective? It, 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 can that apply to those asset classes? I know green bonds are a thing. Perhaps you can just help me and the listeners understand a bit better what are they and, and is that a way of investing sustainably across the asset classes? Yeah, so why don't I take that, that second part first, green bonds. Now, essentially, green bonds or indeed similar social bonds are simply bonds that are issued to explicitly fund projects that have a measurable environmental benefit, or, or indeed in the case of social bonds, a social benefit. So it's as simple as that, you know, raising the monies for the bonds to, to focus um, on a dedicated, explicit project that is deemed green. On the first topic, um, it's actually one that one of the fund managers here, Sabina Raza, wrote a piece on uh, just last week for In Focus, actually. As you, as you say, bondholders don't get a vote, but actually they can be surprisingly powerful. So why is that? Well, firstly, the bond markets are actually far larger than the equity market, and bonds' lives are finite. Mm. Now, unlike an equity, which you know, is infinite, a bond uh, has a finite life you know, where the uh, capital will be repaid, usually. And as such, you know, bond investors can directly influence the behaviour of firms as the firms seek to asset raise or come back to the market, as it's known. 
and they can, you know, the, the investors can influence the coupon paid. So, you know, the better the ESG, the lower that coupon or, or the cost of funding. And, you know, bond markets do have a very, very long memory. So they're pretty good at, at pricing the coupon and extracting the behaviours from the companies that they, that they desire in order to lend them the money for the bond. That's super clear. That's really helpful, Ian. I mean, we're, we're always hearing snippets in this space. And I think to just keep revisiting it in our podcast with you is, is really helpful to keep on top of it and, and also to know what, what choices are out there for investors and how they can reflect their views and wishes in the types of investments that, that they seek to make. So thanks very much. Thanks for joining us. And to our listeners and subscribers, we'll be back next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.